welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reesmandel. Hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. And I'm Eric Glenn. Hello, everybody. Today we're here because we have big news for people who care about community and grassroots radio. And we're going to discuss a little bit of the next opportunity that we know for real for folks to get a low-power FM radio license in the United States. Uh, why is this a big deal? Well, it's the first time in 10 years. It was 10 years ago in 2013 was the last time that you could file an application for a license from the FCC for a low-power FM radio station. And it was a now big it's, deal in 2013, it, too. It was an enormous deal in 2013. It was an enormous deal, one, because these opportunities don't happen very often. In fact, this will be the third window ever. The first one happened in the year 2000. So you see there's a little bit of gap of time between yeah. these windows. We're a full you know, 23 years on from the establishment of this service. It was a particularly big deal in 2013 because more licenses were available. There were more frequencies opened up for stations in 2013 than there had been in 2000. In particular, there were opportunities in big urban areas. So in 2000, most of the stations available due to an act of Congress were mostly in smaller cities and in rural areas. So that meant there really wasn't an opportunity for low power FM in New York or Los Angeles or Chicago or San Francisco. In 2013, due to another act of Congress, basically repealing the previous act of Congress, then there was an opportunity to put stations on the air. And this is something which here at Radio Survivor, we watched very closely. We didn't yet have our podcast. We didn't yet have our radio show. But Jennifer and Matthew Lassar, our other, uh, our other partner here, along with Eric, we watched it very closely. Yeah, and I because mean, we knew it was just going to be an exciting time for community radio. And what you taught me through the work here at Radio Survivor, as I, you know, I've always loved radio, but I learned I didn't. It's a very new thing these low power FM radio stations. It's a very twenty first century, uh, you know, uh, feature of radio in the United States. Uh, these kinds of smaller radio stations that serve neighborhoods essentially, and. Uh, were allowed to go on the air. New stations uh, around the country that that are smaller than how we traditionally think of FM radio, but big enough to still make a difference. And to especially with the um, with the with the with the um, emphasis that being online as well as on the terrestrial radio allows a new radio station in a community when it goes on the air. Low power FM radio. Is, is a very 21st century phenomenon in America. And it was such a it was such a variety of people when we were watching that 2013 window and, and we were watching, you know, before it opened. So I remember going to um, conferences where people were gearing up, you know, and the excitement was mounting. Like we know this window is going to open soon. So people were, you know, doing workshops like Prometheus Radio Project was doing workshops to help people prepare, um, helping people uh, think about establishing nonprofits so that they could apply. So 
I think that was some of the allure, you know, I remember Matthew was, Matthew Lazar was kind of interested in the variety of groups that, that were applying and that were interested. And it really is so different than these impressions that maybe the majority of people have about the radio landscape where the assumption is that it's all commercial, like on Radio Survivor, we know there's a lot of radio on the dial. Um, but LPFM really kind of opens your mind about the variety of people who are interested in doing radio, which was exciting to watch. Right, because Paul, I mean, you should uh, help people understand like low power FM radio as it's crafted, as it's designed is only a non-commercial band. Correct, radio. yes. Yeah, it's only non-commercial um, as well. So low power, I mean, is is right baked in. It means the transmitters work with a maximum of 100 watts of power. So they're meant to cover small areas. The other part of that is they're inexpensive. The equipment's inexpensive. All of the, you know, the ability to get on the air is inexpensive. The so the tower, idea is to make, yeah. yeah, make radio much more approachable for so many, so, for so many more people, so many more communities. And having it designed in that way is kind of important. And the interesting thing is, is, is that this actually, the whole procedure for applying for license is simplified. It's easier to do than it is for a full power radio station. Again, part of that is with more power comes more problems, comes more complexity. So less power, fewer problems, less complexity. And the process is open, it's public. So Jennifer, you mentioned how you and Matthew and I, we were watching these applications come in. Literally you can in the FCC database, you can watch the applications be filed. It's a totally public process. We also monitored how there are cases in which there are competing proposals, competing applications for a single frequency and looking at what, what, how that would work out. And in some cases, organizations began sharing a frequency, sharing a station as part of that settling out. Yeah. That's yeah, one they of did. you mentioned. Yeah. Oh, and they did that in a variety of ways. Some people decided to kind of band together you know, it was obvious there was a number of people interested. So they would, they came together to be sort of one group. Um, and then other people ended up in actual timeshares where they're literally, you know, kind of passing the station back and forth. Um, the programming, you know, changes from one station to another throughout the broadcast week. So yeah, that was interesting too. Like how do people work out these competitive situations? Yeah. And it was fun to learn about these uh, competing applications because uh, as Paul taught me in the process of working on the Radio Driver podcast, uh, the system sort of encouraged cooperation more than a zero-sum game. There were opportunities for two organizations to meet in the middle and run a radio station together without, without, it, without one losing and one winning. And also, it's, it's just exciting to mention that these low-power FM radio stations, it, it didn't take gigantic nonprofit organizations to put them on the air. You really could imagine smaller ones. I mean, I went and visited a low-power FM radio station out in rural Oregon. It looked like four people had put that one together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was it was being housed in a, in a tiny room in a high school in that community. And, you know, just four committed individuals were running it uh, on the daily basis. Yeah, I, and that's by design. 
Yeah, I know there's so much. We're getting all excited about this because yeah. um, there's so many. This brings back so many memories, Paul, of like covering. And I think we've all visited Low Power FM. So I'm thinking about stations I visited that were basically like a shack. Um, and then I'm thinking about another collaboration um, in Denver that was it was like a hacker group, a hackerspace group, and a um, public access group came together. Yeah. Um, and so in cases like that, and um, you saw where the strengths, you know, each organization had these different strengths that really kind of merged um, into, you know, like with with radio stations, um, often you have to do a lot of fundraising regularly. So if you are paired with an organization that has a history of fundraising, that's super helpful. And maybe if you're a hackerspace, you don't have that. Um, right. So that was that was fascinating to me to see how, some of these situations kind of worked out and I mean, absolutely and then uh what what's really exciting again about low power fm radio is chances are if you're listening to radio survivor right now over a terrestrial signal there's a there's a high likelihood that you are listening to us on a low power fm radio station and what's, what was really interesting about them coming into the world in the last uh, 23 years or so is that there's more. There can be more than one in a city. There's room on the dial, or there was room in the past for you know. I I don't want to 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 name a number off the top of my head, but I'm tempted to. You know, Portland, Oregon has has more than how many? Three. There's about four or five yeah. currently on the air. Yeah, yes, Seattle, Washington has. Yeah, dozens exactly. practically not dozens, but yeah, it's similar a kind dozen. of numbers. Absolutely, yeah, right. I mean, I think what it does is a great gift of low power FM is, is that it opens up this notion that community radio doesn't have to be one thing. So, so often a lot of the history of community radio is yeah. that a city would have one community radio station full powered and would have to really kind of cover a lot of bases, a lot of competing needs, not otherwise covered by the existing uh, public and commercial radio broadcasters and having to cut its time in a lot of different ways. And sometimes, you know, causing internal conflicts, yeah. you know, people who, who had very different visions for what community radio looks like. And it was because, you know, due to the nature of the economics of radio and the way the radio licenses are, are given out, forced, you know, a lot of folks into this sort of zero sum kind of mindset. LPFM says, well, no, there could be five or six different interpretations of, of community radio in a given large metroplex so that it doesn't have to be it can't be free for music 24 hours or it can't be 24 hours of talk or it can't be 24 hours in spanish or it can't be any number of other ways that you might cut it um and so it, it, it really i think allowed for a flowering of creativity in non-commercial radio that the the sort of political economy of of broadcasting was a force uh, neutralizing in many cases. It was just harder it, and you had to keep, it was harder to keep a station together in many cases and it could be more expensive to keep together. And I think it also provided a little bit of breathing room for these well-established full power community radio stations because now there were other places for people to go and other places to experiment, other places to do certain types of programming. And so a station could lean into maybe some of its strengths 
and not have to worry about some other things they might feel an obligation to 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 program or audiences to serve that maybe though, though they don't have an existing strength around right because you know programming even when produced by volunteers requires talent and time um you know an effort so in, in a lot of ways i think rather than being a competition for existing community radio stations, Lopar FM really kind of grew the pie, so to speak, rather than having to to split it into multiple pieces. You know what I think is another interesting, I don't know what you guys think of this, but I feel like there's also been a growth in internet radio stations that feel like community radio stations, like that's happening at the same time. Like in San Francisco where I live, I feel like in the past five or six years, we have an increasing number of internet, you know, streaming community radio stations that have very specific identities serving specific music communities um, in particular. And, and to me, it doesn't feel like competition. But yeah, it feels like this growing of uh, that there's this increased um, interest in things that are like community radio, whether it's over LPFM or full power or internet streaming, which I think is really cool. Yeah, there's one in particular in Portland that I that I'm excited about. That's a, a community radio station run online that started up during pandemic. Shady Pines, I, I assume you're thinking of. Shady, Shady Pines. Pines Radio. Yeah, well, and, and I think I think we have, to some extent, LPFM to thank for that. So because, you know, low-power FM stations are low-powered, they tend to have small broadcast radiuses. So that means that in a large metroplex, there might be a station that you've heard about and you really want to listen to, but they're on the other side of the city and it's not just simply not going to come in where, where you live or where you do most of your, of your business. But if it's on the online, right, it eliminates a lot of that, that friction. It means that you can listen and radio listening period in the U S is increasingly moving online. So I think that low power FM got probably a new generation of community radio listeners comfortable with listening online rather than having to listen on a radio receiver. And what we know right now is that most reported radio listening in the United States is in cars and there is, it is plummeting outside of cars in terms and using conventional receivers, but people listen online. They listen, whether through their web browsers, through smart speakers. And so I think, the development of low power stations, especially the 2013 wave, right? Which there were many in internet stations that, that got licenses, right. right? So I think of like hollow earth radio in Seattle was a relatively well-established internet station or our chirp in, mm -hmm. in Chicago. Yeah. Relatively well-established internet stations that were internet stations because up to that moment, licenses weren't available to them. Right. They might have been a, a, a terrestrial radio station, but but simply couldn't be in any sort of reasonable way. But once the opportunity to go on the air came about, could immediately say, OK, well, we've already we're already got a studio. We already know how to run a station. So now all we're doing is adding and adding a transmitter, essentially. But which also, you know, grows the uh, the the, the um, awareness of the station 
right? Having having a real signal. It means people will still stumble upon you in the car and other places. And 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 I think it also adds this this extra sense of of permanency and officialness having that license that makes you know local news media and other local organizations begin to take you more seriously. But now we're ten years later into twenty twenty three, and for a lot of people, I think their relationship with their local low power FM station is as an internet radio station, rather than as because that's how they're listening to it because they're not necessarily in the immediate signal area. So that's how they consume it. And so that kind of flattens things out. And I think what that has done is made people take an internet radio station more seriously, right? To consider it a little less uh, like a flyby night, a little less thinking like, well, oh, internet station. Yeah. You know, anyone could do that kind of, anyone can do a podcast. Well, you know, what is it? That's not serious. Every, everybody's got a podcast. Right, but takes it to this other level of like, well, no, we're more sophisticated, I think, even as a culture around it 10 years on of understanding that, sure, and anyone could do it doesn't mean that anyone does do it well. And so someone who who puts in the effort to create an online station uh, that is that has good programming and represents the community, well, you know, starts to be perceived sort of on par with any other yeah. radio station that, 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 that at least from a programming uh, standpoint seems similar. But I, I honestly would argue that you could draw a line back to that explosion of community radio in 2013 of sort of really kind of uh, planting a very green field uh, to be, to be harvested um, in, in the in intervening years. Um, but I, I, one thing I think we should talk about, you know, as, as we sort of pumped is that we should give people some sense of like, okay, I, I'm excited about this idea of a low power FM station. Um, so how do I get one? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like that, and we, that's sort and of this is an the question, important like, part of it. And this is a question like we always get right on radio survivor is mm -hmm. I want to start my own station. And so finally we can once again, point people to this opportunity. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're talking today on Radio Survivor. We should reset for if anyone just tuned in. Uh, we're talking about low-power FM radio stations. We're, we're celebrating their existence and the, the incredible 23 years that it's been since, since uh, the first low-power FM radio stations came online. And we're talking about them today in June of 2023 because there's a new window, which is the first new window in 10 years for new stations to come on into the world. But... There's a catch, and that's what we're going to be talking about for the next, uh, at least next twenty minutes or so. Is it's um, there are some hoops to jump through, and there are some uh, there there are. It's not as easy as it was maybe uh, twenty three years ago to get a new station, a new low power FM radio station on the on the internet. I mean, on the radio dial, uh, because because there's so many already taking up that available spectrum in the cities where we live. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, going back to basics, you can't just apply for a radio station any day of the week in the United States. It's not like a driver's license. Um, at this point in time, the FCC holds what are called licensing windows, application windows. And it's only during a very specified am amount of time, days, that you can submit an application, which means you have to be ready ahead of time, right? <laughs> you need to be need to have all your ducks in a row ahead of time. So the window in 2023 will be from November 1st through November 8th. So right now it is uh, the very beginning of July. And so basically you've got, you know, 
uh, about four months hmm. head start to begin begin preparing. So who can get a low power FM radio station? Well, I cannot. Individuals cannot. They only go to recognized nonprofit organizations. So that can be a nonprofit corporation. You have to be registered with the state. You don't have to be a federally recognized one. So there's what we often hear about is a 501c3. That's an IRS designation. That means that you can take tax deductible donations. You don't need that. But if you, you know, are going to be in California, you probably need to register with the state of California. You know, pick the state you're in. So if it's a pre-existing organization, it's already a nonprofit, you're good to go. If you don't have one, well, you'll need to form one now. That the rules are different every state. So that's something between you and the Secretary of State or the Secretary of the Commonwealth, wherever you live. But you will need to have that in place before applying. Or if perhaps, there's competition. Or perhaps, right, approach a nonprofit with your yes. super exciting plan that's right. and or, see what they have to say about exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. You could approach a nonprofit to see um, if they would be interested. Um, if there is competition, the FCC gives preference to nonprofits that have been incorporated and instantiated for two years or longer. Other entities that can apply are accredited non-commercial or nonprofit schools. So a high school it is, and, and we've talked about high schools that have had low power FM licenses, Jennifer, obviously colleges and universities, um, but they do need to be accredited and they do need to be non nonprofit tribal entities for broadcasting on tribal lands, as well as governments. And there are local governments who have also applied for and gotten low power FM licenses. So you can see that the overall trend, though, is that these are organizations that are that are non-commercial in their nature, nonprofit in their nature. Within nonprofits, it includes churches and religious groups as well. And many churches and religious groups do own uh, low power FM licenses. And we talk about this around community radio because that's a application of low power FM. It's not a requirement that you necessarily run your station like a community radio station. Um, it's not required that you sort of uh, have more of an open mic access uh, kind of, uh, kind of uh, programming regime. In fact, no particular type of programming is required. Preference is given to programming that is intended to be educational. Preference is given to local programming, but it's not required. And when we say preference, again, those are situations in which there's more than one um, entity applying for a single license. Yeah. The FCC Com actually, we, for, we won't step through it. Yeah. Competing for the same, uh, you know, space on Frequency. the dial in a neighborhood or yeah. around exactly. that neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. And the FCC has a point system. We won't go through it. It, it, it. The purpose of this is not to walk through this, but it's good to understand that that's where it comes in and you get points for these various aspects and satisfying them. And and, and, the, and they come to bear again if you're competing for a single frequency. Right. Might, maybe this so you is, have to have all this together. Maybe this is the, the place to just mention that uh, there are broadcast law professionals who are available uh, to help yeah. people with this. Yeah, you don't, and you don't really need a broadcast paid. law professional. You don't really need a lawyer involved, um, you know, but th there is some engineering that has to happen. It is incumbent upon you to find a frequency in your area that you think would work for the station. There are tools for this. Um, Rec Networks, which is an engineering and advocacy firm, um, 
has put together lots and lots of tools. We'll link to this in our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Um, and uh, has put on a, a, a put up a site called lpfm.app, which allows you to do these frequency searches, has a really very informative fact. Also gives you outlines a lot of these things that I'm mentioning just sort of in passing about the points and uh, all the sorts of things that you need to know going in. But, you know, sort of at the high level, you will, you need to be a nonprofit organization or a school government entity or tribal entity in order to apply for a station. Um, you need to be able to do this engineering study, which can be done basically online. So it's, it's not um, particularly complex. Um, and so you, because you basically need to tell the FCC that you believe you can, you can build a station um, on this frequency at this location. And here's the other thing you need to have. You need to figure out where your antenna is going to be. And that's critical. You need to have, be able to tell the FCC that we have an assurance that we will be able to build the transmitter and antenna where we say we will. So this is not something you go, oh, snap, I got I to gotta find a place to put that antenna now that they gave me a license. It's something you actually need to, need to secure ahead of time and have some assurance to do. And, 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 and folks have lost their construction permits because their, their hosting didn't fall, fell through or because they honestly didn't really have it in the first place. So that's something you do have to have uh, worked out ahead of time. And so if you have, you know, those things, you have a location for your transmitter site, uh, you have you have the proper type of nonprofit status, um, you know, then you're in pretty good shape if to to begin looking at at selecting that frequency that you want to apply for. Other things to think about, if your organization already has a low power FM license, you're no longer eligible. One per customer is because it's designed to be very local and not to be turned into chains of low power FM stations. It's a one per customer sort of situation that also your organization owns another radio station, commercial or non-commercial, you're no longer eligible. There are some exceptions that can come through that we're not gonna get so much into. So if you're, you know, if your station is, ha if you are, let's say like at a college that has a public radio station and you'd like to put a community station on the air for the students, that's something you should pursue, but we're not in a position really to go through all these exceptions here on uh on radio survivor but just to know that generally speaking um it's the only station that your organization owns as well if you have like a nonprofit and there's a board of directors anyone on your board of directors cannot have an attributable attributable interest in another radio station meaning they shouldn't be sitting on the board of another community radio station somewhere else again it's the idea that these stations should be run independently and be responsive to community needs as well if you have a headquarters to your organization it has to be within 20 miles of your proposed site hmm. 10 miles if you're in a major market or sometimes you don't have an hq you just have like a po box because you, you just simply don't have an office at least 75 percent of your board members must reside within 20 miles of where you're going to put that radio station so again, these are people who, who board members of a nonprofit, those are the people with, you know, who are essentially in charge, right? Nonprofits don't have owners per se, like, like a small business might. So effectively you're, you're, you're standing in as the legal representatives of this radio station. So again, that's important that that all be knit up. And as we watch Jennifer, if you remember in, in 2013 into 2014, 
as we watched the FCC move through applications. There were these cases in which it seemed like the same names kept popping up on applications. And, and, and often there's somebody who prepares the application, right? Kind of like a tax preparer, only it's an engineer or someone. Now they can, they can do lots of them, right? But the whole idea is that as a person who's preparing the application, not who's going to run the station. But there seemed to be some blurred lines here and there. And it wasn't clear if maybe the person who was preparing the application actually was trying to, on the down low, set up a chain of low power FM right. stations. And, and we should mention that you can't sell them. You, you, you cannot sell them. You can transfer license, right? So, but you, 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 they are not uh, sellable, which is different than regular non-commercial licenses. A full power non-commercial license can be sold uh, between entities um, and commercial licenses most definitely can be sold. Yeah. The low power FM licenses may not be sold. That's a really important uh, element, um, which again is intended to help maintain this sort of local, easy to obtain, easy to operate nature of low power FM. Yeah. But Paul, you were about to ask uh, Jennifer to recall some of those uh... Uh, should I say, uh, mysterious or compelling anecdotes about about somebody trying to file an application for multiple stations, parachuting into communities, perhaps? You're stretching my my brain with that. Yeah, but I don't I know... want to mention names. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, we have it there. So uh, you know, I think I remember. Uh, the I, name. I remember the name very well. Uh, <laughs> And, and we were not the only ones looking into it, uh, you know, and trying to see what what was going on, you know, and and because not only you know did 2013 end up with putting more community radio stations on the air at one time than ever in history it also meant there were more applications yeah there were there were thousands of applications at that time it was and in many cases you know there were situations that i remember in in los angeles where there were maybe 12 qualified applications for a single frequency. Yeah. What I mean by qualified is that certainly the FCC looks through and finds various defects in the application or someone didn't dot the I's and crosses the T's. Maybe they you know, aren't an actual registered nonprofit, all sorts of things. But there were cases in which you, know, you had 12 qualified organizations competing for one frequency. Uh, that many of those took years to sort out. Many Some of those stations did not actually get fully licensed and built until until 2015. Paul, I'm sorry to throw a hot potato at you, but it's an exciting question. So hope if you don't have the answer, that's okay uh, to let us know that it's, it's something to look up for later. But we're talking about low-power FM radio stations, which were allowed to come uh, into the cities and communities where we live in the United States, uh, smaller radio stations that reach a neighborhood run by nonprofits, uh, the first ones came on uh, in the year, in, well, about 23 years ago. Another window opened up about 10 years ago. And I'm wondering, and now we're talking about it today because a new window is opening up uh, this fall, which is exciting. And uh, listen back to this episode if you missed it, if you're curious. But I'm ask, I want to ask you about, um, do we know how many of these radio stations that came on to the airwaves in the last uh, couple decades, uh, how many survived at this point in time? I don't have a, a precise number, but but certainly some did not. And I think at least the pandemic probably as yeah. bears some responsibility on that. What we can say is that if we look back to March of 2019, we had 2,171 low-power FM stations that the FCC counted as being on the air. Um, as of this past March, which is the last count that the FCC has delivered, 
it's down to 1,999. So that's a rel that's a loss of a 182. Now, some of those licenses, some of those frequencies might be back up for grabs in this particular uh. window. Not all may be because in the interim, since 2013, there have been other licensing windows on the FM dial. The most important of which was a licensing window for what are called translator stations. These are repeater stations. Their only reason to exist is to repeat the signal of another station. They have similar sort of technical specifications to low power FM. They're not exactly the same, but they're close enough in that you can put a translator on the same frequency in the same place that you could put a low power FM. So that means that some open frequencies that might otherwise be available for low power FM in the last 10 years, those have been taken up by new translator stations. Demand for translator stations went way up in this last 10 years because it used to be you could only get an FM translator station to repeat your FM station. Now the FCC allows an AM station to get a little transmitter on the FM dial. We have a lot to talk so about with really AM radio, too, in 2023. Yes. But uh, that, that greatly increased the demand for those stations. So that probably soaked up some frequencies. Could be some of those could be low-power FMs that turned, that, that either had their, their license canceled or they turned them back in. As well, there was also, in, uh, in the last few years, a window for full-power non-commercial stations. Now, full-power non-commercial stations cannot necessarily go on the exact same frequency as a low-power FM might. But the more stations you put on the dial, the more it crowds out, right? In the same way that if you put up a mansion where you might have been able to put up, you know, four ranch houses, it's that sort of analogy. So the number of frequencies available for low-power FM, period, is going to be lower than it was in 2013. Um, it's going to be even lower in big metroplexes, especially in the interior of big cities. Um, and so the, you know, a lot more of the available frequencies are going to be left in uh, sort of rural areas and in more of the uh, small cities, as well as the edges of big metroplexes. Um, I'm certain we'll hear uh, some work that people will do and we'll, we'll have more guidance on what that's looking like in, in some within a month or two. We'll definitely publish that at radiosurvivor.com. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, as it is, you know, and some people have sometimes pointed towards the loss of stations as a failure of the service. But when we look back all the way to September of 2013, there were only 749 low power FM radio stations on the air. And so today there are 1,999, right? So nearly three times as many. So even if there is uh, a little bit of loss as time goes on, there's been loss of AM stations. There's been loss of commercial FM stations. Overall, I think we can say that that uh, low power FM has still been, been on balance, uh, a pretty wild success. Yeah, and a very exciting one for people who love radio and love listening to radio. I mean, we're very familiar here at Radio Survivor with our local low-power FM radio stations, but Jennifer Waits has toured the country and visited low-power FM radio stations around. Uh, it's very exciting how many new colleges have 
launched Low Power FM as a way to either revitalize radio on their campuses or bring radio for the first time to their campuses. Well, and, and something that that I covered and was really excited about was um, there were colleges that college radio stations that had lost their full power frequencies and a few of them, a number of them um, ended up applying for low power FM licenses and so came back to the terrestrial airwaves thanks to this opportunity. So um, that was amazing for me to see. Uh, we saw it in San Francisco with volunteers who are from KUSF at University of San Francisco. They ended up um, creating San Francisco Community Radio as an internet station, applied for low power FM and obtained a license that they share with San Francisco Public Press, uh, which is a local news organization. Um, it's and one then, of those timeshare frequencies. Yep, it's a timeshare. And then in Houston, Rice University, um, they lost their FM license and then you know, they were able to apply for and obtain a low power FM license. And when um, you say lost, I just want to, I'm going to be a little uh, <laughs> picky in here. It wasn't the case that the FCC came and took their license. Right. It was that the universities sold the license to right. another entity. Which we've talked about on Radio So Survivor. the students lost, the yeah. students lost the, the community license, lost essentially. It. Yeah. But, but, but they weren't, it was not the case that the FCC came and took it back. And exactly. And in both cases, you know, the, the people who were, um, running the radio stations on campus wanted to continue operating over FM. So the licenses were sold out from under them because uh, the licenses were held by, by the university. So, you know, they- and, and were valuable. They were, they, they, they got a pretty penny in many cases for some of these licenses when they sold them uh, on the open market as it were, which you can't do with low power FM stations. They, they revert back to the, to the great, pool of available spectrum uh, without without being uh, bought or sold for any dollar amount. Exactly. Yeah. So and then a, a third, um, I'll tease this because we'll talk about this on a future episode. Um, a third station, Brown Student Radio, um, was a student and community station um, affiliated with Brown University. And although they didn't have their own license on the dial, um, they were able to utilize time from another local school and they uh, they lost, that agreement came to an end. And so then a few years later, they were also able to apply for a low power FM license and obtained it. So they're back. So there are a few of these stories where I've been covering for years, kind of the trials and tribulations. Um, and uh, Brown Student Radio, I got to visit this spring. So that's what I'm teasing is that I'll I'll talk more about that on a future episode. But it was nice to visit in person after I'd been covering all these stories related to that station, including, you know, the success they had with the LPFM opportunity. So to learn more, you can definitely go to our website, radiosurvivor.com. Up in our main menu, we have a uh, we have a menu item for low power FM, LPFM. So click there and we've got a page that's about LPFM. And I can also direct you to a number of organizations that can help you apply for uh, a low power FM license if you're a qualified uh, nonprofit. So there is Rec Networks as well. There is Common Frequency and the Prometheus Radio Project amongst many. 
Uh, so we want to have you go to our website or you can you can just Google those things I just told you about. Uh, mostly we just want to make sure we're directing you in the right place. If this sounds like an interesting opportunity for you to apply come November 1st of 2023. And you are listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reesmandel. You just heard the voice of Jennifer Waits and we're here as well with Eric Klein. You can get this show as a podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And now they say everywhere, wherever you get your podcast, because people got tired of enumerating the 17 different podcast apps out there. But, you know, that does include places like Spotify and uh, and Apple Podcasts, for lack of a better place to send you. Um, You know, speaking of the FCC, not taking away licenses. We have an interesting case coming up to be decided uh, in just a few weeks here on January 20, I'm sorry, July, it is July, my friends, July 20th of this year, where the FCC is going to vote on what is what have become known as Franken FMs. And uh, I used to call them backdoor FMs, but the Franken FM moniker kind of stuck. Uh, we'll thank our friend uh, Ernie Smith at tedium.co uh, for, for really uh, helping to coin that term. It just makes it more exciting to talk about them. Yeah, my, my, oh, yes. My face lights up every time you talk about Frank and FM's, Paul. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, this, so this so clearly, been a, yeah. This has been a hobby been... of yours for, to, to, to follow this weird little history of these radio stations that maybe should have never been, but are special to, to many of the communities that happen to have accidentally uh, got one on the air. What's a Frank and FM, Paul? So flashback to 2009. And all the times before that, if you were in a community that had a TV channel on channel six, you might have discovered the phenomenon that if you turned your radio FM dial all the way to the left side, you could hear the audio from that TV channel. Now, it's not an official frequency. It's 87.75 megahertz FM. Yeah, and it's important to note that the this is when it was all analog before the digital transition. Mm-hmm. That's why the date is important. And you, you couldn't put a radio station there. It's just this little, this little fun phenomenon that you could hear the audio from channel six there. And that's what it was, except in 2009, all full powered stations went digital, which meant their audio was no longer analog. Uh, FM audio is analog. Yeah, television stations. I'm sorry. All full-power television stations went digital. So they quit broadcasting an analog signal. So that meant they no longer were heard on Channel 6 and were heard on FM dial. But the FCC gave a longer life to analog low-power television stations. They're allowed to stay analog for quite some time. And so those few lucky stations that had a Channel 6 in their area realized, well, wait a second, we're heard on the FM dial. Most people are using digital receivers now to get their television. We're actually maybe a radio station now and started to actually broadcast more as radio stations than television stations. It first really started showing up in, in, like, in like late 2009, early 2010. And they're sort of sprinkled around the country and the most famous of which is a station we've talked about here in Radio Survivor is MeTV FM. 
So many of you may have seen the TV channel, MeTV, which which shows like old sitcoms and movies and things like that. Well, they have like a nostalgia format FM station in Chicago that's on a former, well, a current low power uh, TV station on channel six, broadcasting at 87.75. And it's popular enough that it actually scores really well in the Nielsen ratings. Most of these stations probably don't make a blip, but it's actually more popular than regular FM stations. So this sort of phenomena has built for many years, but it looked like it was going to go away. And that's because in 2022, the FCC said all these, all these little uh, low power TV stations got to go digital too. And, and so that was going to take them off the air. And we're talking about them again because these Franken FM radio stations, uh, which were which were accidents in history, like stuck between one era and another in a transitional moment. But uh, a few of these stations became, uh, you know, v- uh, viable, really. And viable more, stations. Yeah. More viable is radio in many ways than television, yeah. actually. And. So many of them went off the air in July 2022 when they were required to go digital. But a few stations petitioned the FCC and said, hey, we've built an audience. We've built a service. Listeners have come to depend on this. Don't make a shutdown. And said, look, we think that we can have our digital TV signal and then a little auxiliary analog FM radio signal next to it. We think it'll work. It won't cause problems. People will be able to continue to get the service. Everyone will be happy. And they got what was known as, what is known as special temporary authority. So since July of last year, there are 13 stations that are former Channel 6 analog low power television stations broadcasting as radio stations on the far left end of the dial. Right now, it's just been sort of a trial period. And controversial. There are many in in sort of the public radio community who are upset about it because they say, look, if we want to make this a real frequency, we should all get a chance at it. We should all have an opportunity to apply for it. Why, Why just this special exception? Other folks have said, yeah, not only that, we should just open up the FM band. There's some frequencies that have been opened up to the left side. Why don't we just expand the FM dial? The National Association of Broadcasters said, well, let's just, they petitioned the FCC and said, look, just let these stations have it and call it quits at that. 13 stations so grandfathered July, in, and, but closed the door. And closed the door, yep, exactly. So um, the FCC had a, a, a notice of proposed rulemaking, putting out various questions like this. What should we do? What should we do? And so uh, just on the 29th of June, they put out a notice of what they intend to vote on on the 20th of July. And what they're going to vote on, the FCC commissioners, is that they would decide that it is in the public interest and consistent with the Communications Act of 1934 to permit a limited group of these FM6, is what they're calling them, LPTV stations, to continue providing that service would furthermore actually allow these permits or licenses to be transferred or sold. Ah. Right now, if you have that special temporary uh, authority, you, you one of the conditions of that special temporary authority is that you can't transfer it right now. It stays with you and you only. 
The FCC says is also voting on that they would decline to repurpose any additional channel six spectrum, which is 82 to 88 megahertz for additional FM services. So basically the FCC is going to vote on letting these last 13 Franken FM stay on the air and closing the door behind them. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I love about this story, Paul, and, and it, how it relates also to our earlier conversation today about low-power FM stations? So the Franken FMs and the low-power FMs are both stories of new radio uh, coming into our communities in our lifetimes, in the 21st century, and how the FCC deals with that and regulates that. And it's a reminder to me of something that I had never considered in, in my life as a radio listener back in the 20th century, that all of this is always in play. And that that different mm -hmm. different market forces, different communities, different people who make radio for profit and for fun, and the government body that has been designated to regulate it, the FCC, it's always just been an ongoing process and a lot of the really exciting stuff happened so far before i was born that it faded so far into the background that i didn't become aware that those uh events had taken place that radio had been uh, fought over and was an exciting territory of 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 uh, conflict at one time or you know if not conflict maybe the, a better metaphor is just that it's um that there's that there's there's different forces at work uh, creating the radio landscape as we hear it. And it's exciting to hear that uh, this work continues. The spectrum is still being, um, uh, you know, competed for, as it were. And, and different stations come and different stations go. Yes, it's important to remember exactly as you say it, that it is being written and rewritten all the time. Low Power FM happened because radio activists petitioned the FCC for it, right? It didn't come out of thin air. It was hard activist work that convinced the FCC and, and, and ultimately lawmakers that this was a good idea. And at the time, there was also pressure, social pressure. There was rampant pirate radio happening in the late 90s in the U.S. Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible story of the 1990s that we can get excited about, that there was this, there was a lot of indie media action around cities. Look up indie media uh, to learn more. And there was also a lot of um, media activism. You know, it's, we're really uh, talking about a moment where the birth of the Internet is coming along and there's a lot of hope about what the Internet it can mean for society before before we got to where we are now and and there was a time where uh 90s activists were demanding a new way to get on the radio and and the result of their of their activities of their of their organizing was low power fm that came along in the 2000s i also think it's you know important to point out that for the 2013 window it was also activists that that helped to um open up even more frequencies. You know, we didn't think that we were going to get LPFM in so many urban areas, but, you know, thanks to the work of, of activists, um, activist engineers um, who pointed out there is room actually to squeeze more stations into cities. And that's why we have as many of these stations from the 2013 window that we do. Yeah, things can expand. The idea that maybe the FM band could expand down to 82 megahertz is not crazy 
right? The fact that it's not going to happen right now doesn't mean it couldn't ever happen. It could be its own proceeding. Uh, the AM ban prior to the 1990s stopped at 1620 and currently goes to 1700. Just a small little change. And granted, people don't take AM as seriously these days, but it just goes to show that that changes can and do happen. And yes, uh, you know, moneyed interests often play an outside role, but these are public processes that are at least in principle designed to be accessible. And so it is the case that folks who are um, activists for the public interest can have an impact, can have and and, and help uh, get real results because it's not as if there was just some red carpet rolled out for low power FM in 2000. It was actually heavily, heavily opposed. Opposed not just by the commercial broadcasting industry. It was heavily opposed by national public radio. It was opposed by the public radio establishment. Worries that it would take frequencies that might be used uh, for rural service to build translators in mountainous areas, right? Um, and there's always been this sort of fear, I think, in a lot of the the non-commercial radio establishment that that there is a dilution effect that more stations dilute the overall pie especially the funding base whereas a lot of community radio folks sort of have a different attitude that additions additional stations don't dilute things they bring more listeners they bring more people to community and non-commercial radio and they grow the pie but these have been intention they've been in intention for a long time because there were low power FM stations from the beginning of FM. They went away in the late seventies. They were called class D 10, 10 watt stations that principally went to educational organizations, principally went to like schools and high schools. And the FCC was lobbied to eliminate those licenses back in 1978. And, but it is that history that those stations once existed that gave a leg up to the low power FM activists in the late nineties, because they could simply turn to the FCC and say, look, there's not a technical reason you can't do this. There's nothing inherent about power. that says we can't have a 10 or hundred watt station. It's really about choices. It's a political question, not a technical question. And which, which becomes an important argument, right? Because, Lots of arguments were made. Well, these 10 watt stations aren't very useful because they can't broadcast very far. They're toys. Um, they're operated basically as vanity projects. They don't add anything substantial to the dial. You know, college students are, are, are bad broadcasters. All these sorts of arguments were, were trotted out in the late 70s when the FCC finally got rid of the first wave of, of uh, low power FM stations. So it's really important to see these things as, as influx and changeable. And the other lesson I take away from Frank and FM is that the FCC doesn't see itself in the business of taking stations off the air, right? That it's not, they're not really eager. Now they haven't done this yet, right? They have not yet voted on this and voted for it. But I think um, the smart money is that they're probably going to vote to do this, that there'll probably be a vote in favor of keeping these Frank and FMs. We'll see if I'm right or not. I don't make many predictions. But that they, 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 there seems to be a resistance to taking away a service that's found a footing. That was done legally, right? Those low-power TV stations were all legally licensed. They weren't doing anything that was um, strictly verboten. 
they were just using their TV stations in a novel way. And then they, they petitioned the FCC for special authority to carry on. They didn't just leave it on because I think if they just left it on, um, their analog signals when they're supposed to be turned off, the FCC would have had a very different reaction, right? Would have treated them basically as pirates. And that's why I always wanted to kind of get that in front of people who are in community radio in particular and college radio, because there's often a lot of fear of the FCC because the FCC will take action on stations that break the rules, that don't operate properly, that don't file their paperwork and things like this. But then overall, the FCC, their, their general countenance is not to find reasons, gotcha reasons, and they go patrolling around to go take you off the air. Their, their, their real reason is to, to be sure that stations are operating as they're supposed to in the public interest and are there more to support stations staying on the air than they are to to be police and take stations off the air. But when things are not done according to the law and the rules, that's certainly a different matter. It's not that I'm sitting here going rah-rah FCC. I can find plenty of fault with the, with the FCC. But the FCC is a political agency, right? It is political appointees who are at the top, who are the commissioners. Underneath them are career bureaucrats, people who care about broadcasts and about lots of other things, you know, and, and whose jobs don't change when the administrations change and don't need to be appointed in, in, by a president and don't need to be confirmed by the Senate and whose jobs may stay there for 10 or 20 or 30 years and who are there really because they believe in broadcasting or believe in the service that, 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 that communications can provide uh, to the country. So, so it, it, is, it is sort of uh, complex in that way so uh, it'll be i will be very curious to see um what the fcc does even if i have my own uh, prediction in for these uh franken fm stations you know it's really fun we have about a minute left on radio survivor today and i just had this a thought popped into my head that um there have been articles of re uh, recent articles that i've read that have been amusing to me because i do have a 17 year old in my household and it's about his generation uh, their new appreciation for the analog in the world and and for for the I, the ways in which they can enjoy their time uh, without their phones and obviously this is not a mass movement that's uh, that's taking fire the same way TikTok might but there are young people who still care about these alternate experiences and I I do wonder if if uh, FM radio is about to find a new audience in their generation just because just because of um you know, the ability to passively enjoy music from people in their community. And if they live in a nice place that has a nice low power FM radio station or a college campus, it's certainly, I can imagine that uh, FM radio is not yet done for. Uh, it will survive. Uh, that's it for Radio Survivor. You've been listening to us either on the radio or online. We're available as a podcast wherever you get your podcast. Uh, you can email us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We'd love to hear from you. There will be show notes online for today's episode, everything that Paul Reese-Mandel talked about, all the important information about whether if, if you want to apply for a low-power FM radio station, it's complicated. Listen to the episode again, but also check out the show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcasts. Well, my name is Eric Klein. Uh, today's episode has been... Uh, produced by Paul Reismandel and Jennifer Waits is here as well and it's been a pleasure uh, to broadcast to you again thanks for listening we'll see you next week thank you thanks so much